1: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today.
2: I fear that this example and this kind of, if I may say so, U.S. soft power is fading. Allies worry about the next U.S. presidential election. Will the losing candidate and his or her party once again claim that the victory was stolen? Our authoritarian foes in the world are gleefully watching the fragility of a
0: powerful democracy. Peter Wittig worked in the German Diplomatic Service for nearly four decades. He was Germany's ambassador to the United Nations, its ambassador to the United States, and its ambassador to the United Kingdom. He currently is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. He joins me today to talk about foreign perceptions of the United States. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, it's time to commit. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ambassador Wittig, Peter, welcome to Intelligence Matters. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Michael, for, for having me on your program.
0: So, Peter, you know that I've been wanting for some time to have a discussion on intelligence matters about foreign perceptions of the United States. And quite frankly, I can't think of anyone better placed than you to have that conversation with. Your time in Washington, your time in London, your time in New York, all your contacts around the world give you, I think, more insight into this question than really anybody else I can think of. You obviously have your own perceptions, of course, but you also have, I'm sure, gotten a very good sense of the perceptions of many other folks around the world as well. I also want to just start by saying that I hope we can talk about foreign government perceptions of the United States, not necessarily public perceptions. But if you want to bring public perceptions into the discussion, please do. Let's just make clear that we're making that conscious switch from public to government and back and forth. Peter, I think the best place to start is to talk about why foreign perceptions of the United States matter. You know, why should Americans care? Why should my listeners care? You know, I can imagine some people saying, you know, who cares? Some some Americans saying, who cares what others in the world think of us? So how would you answer that question in terms of why do foreign perceptions of the U.S. matter?
2: Michael, I have uh, two thoughts on your question. The first is one of a professional diplomat. Perceptions of other countries matter a lot because perceptions influence, uh, sometimes even determine foreign policy choices. Whether foreign governments consider the U.S. As, as an interested or disinterested party, as strong or weak, as united or divided on certain international issues, those perceptions shape their country's decisions. The great historian Christopher Clarke Uh, has argued in his famous book on the First World War, it's called The Sleepwalkers, that the war broke out, at least partly, because of the stunning misperceptions that the major powers had of each other. So my second thought is one that I have as a great friend of the United States. It is about alliances. It's true, the US is still the most powerful country in the world, but even the US needs allies to achieve its goals in foreign security policy. In other words, alliances are part of the US power projection in the world. What distinguishes the US from other great powers like China or Russia is its capacity to create and maintain voluntary alliances on an equal footing, based on, on shared values and respect for each other, not based on coercion or economic dependency. And to be able to do that, foreign perceptions of the U.S. matter enormously.
0: So Peter, let's talk a little bit about how and why perceptions of the U.S. have changed over the last several decades. You, Peter, joined the German diplomatic service during the Cold War, just as I joined CIA during the Cold War. How was America perceived by the world then and why during the Cold War?
2: Well, when the Second World War ended and the Cold War started, the U.S. took a seminal, enormously consequential decision. So in stark contrast to the aftermath of the First World War, this time, the U.S. did not leave Europe. It remained engaged in Europe and in Japan, by the way. So beyond military forces on the ground, it engaged economically on a large scale. The Marshall Plan, or the Economic Recovery Program, transferred over 13 billion U.S. dollars, equivalent to 120 billion today, to Western Europe to rebuild war-torn regions and improve prosperity. Of course, it was not just a charitable gift. It was an incredibly far-sighted investment to secure geopolitical influence over Western Europe, and prevent the spread of communism. But it also shaped Europe's and, in particular, German, Germany's perception of the U.S. as a force for good. It happened, imagine, 75 years ago and is still part of our collective memory. The creation of NATO in 1949 and later the Soviet-led Warsaw Pact were expressions of the Cold War, division of Europe. Of course, the perception of the U.S. at that time depended on the camp to which these countries belonged. For Germany and other countries in Western Europe, NATO was the military and political reassurance that guaranteed their existence. Germany, for instance, was a frontline state. Later, the Vietnam War divided European societies as much Uh, as it divided the public opinion in the U.S. But on a government level, the transatlantic alliance was never jeopardized. And the same goes for the arms built up in Europe in the 70s. The governments knew full well that without the protection of the U.S., they would be exposed to Soviet coercion. So the perception of the U.S. as a protective power as a as a European power, if you will, with skin in the game was crucial to the peace and prosperity of Europe. And by the way, much of the same positive development happened with the other major World War
0: II foe of the U.S., namely Japan. Mm-hmm. So Peter, talk a little bit about that period between the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the Soviet Union at one end of the timeline and 9-11 on the other end of the timeline, right? This is the so-called unipolar moment for the U.S. How did governments around the world perceive the United States then and why?
2: Well, Michael, allow me for a moment to dwell on the fall of the war in Germany in 1989 because that was a moment when the perception of the U.S., as a trusting ally and a force for good, was at its peak. Bush-Baker team at the time recognized early on that the unification of the two Germanys was simply unstoppable. So the U.S. supported it wholeheartedly. Instead of resisting it, and that was the first instinct, understandably, in a way, of France and Britain, The U.S. administration tried to steer the inevitable in the right direction, embedding the United Germany firmly in the Western fold. I personally consider this a U.S. masterpiece of skillful and strategically visionary diplomacy. And more than that, it instilled a sense of enormous gratitude to the U.S. in a generation of German political leaders. To your question on the unipolar moment, indeed, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, another really pivotal historical moment, the clear perception was there's only one superpower left. The end of history. That was not only the title of an influential book by Francis Fukuyama, but it was also basically the mindset of many leaders in Europe. The U.S. was seen as the uncontested democratic leader of the world, especially by the new democracies, the assumption being that sooner or later most countries of the world would follow the, if I may say so, liberal democratic script of the West. It didn't happen. All of us We underestimated the strength of what we considered archaic forces in the international arena. Extremist nationalism, violent religious radicalism, ethnic tribal forces of all kinds. They tested us, all of us, starting in the 1990s and at the beginning of the new century. So it was clearly not
0: the end of history. Peter, we're gonna talk in detail in a little bit about Ukraine, but I wanna ask you here, if you believe that the United States and NATO made a mistake during this unipolar moment by expanding NATO to the east, by expanding it right to the Russian border. I wonder what your thoughts are on that question. There's a lot of discussion about that today. You know, would Would today be different if we had taken a different course with post-Soviet Russia, would we be better off or would we be worse off? What, what, what are your thoughts on that question?
2: Michael, you're right. The debates about who lost Russia have been rekindled with the Russian war against Ukraine on February 24. I want to weigh my judgment very carefully here. Uh, George Kennan, a towering figure of generations of diplomats, called the swift NATO expansion the most fateful era of American policy in the post-Cold War era. I think Henry Kissinger argues along similar lines. Even William Burns, the current CIA director and former ambassador to Russia, whom I deeply respect and uh, that I, and I had the pleasure to work with him in Washington, Even Burns called the NATO expansion in the mid-90s premature at best and needlessly provocative for Russia at worst. I would partially disagree here. The new Eastern European states, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, also the Baltic states, they were undergoing a tremendously challenging and difficult transformation process. And with post-communist forces very much alive, and their democratic success far from assured, these countries wanted to get out of a security gray zone as fast as possible. And their swift NATO membership locked in their success as Western-style democracies and prevented A kind of a backsliding into a security and political no man's land. And besides, the NATO Russia agreement of 1997, that followed the invitation for Eastern European countries to join NATO, was de facto a recognition of this new reality by Russia. So I really don't buy Putin's narrative today that tracks. Russia's war against Ukraine back to NATO expansion to Eastern Europe as if this was kind of the original sin? Never ever has NATO, a defense alliance, threatened Russia in its territorial integrity or sovereignty. And Russia, in turn, has signed various international agreements where the right of states to choose their own alliances freely were enshrined like the Charter of Paris in 1990. So Putin's justification of his invasion of Ukraine as a defense act against an aggressive NATO is simply absurd. And it only serves to cover up his, one could call, revisionist project to reinstate Russia's dominance over Eastern Europe.
0: Peter, talk a little bit about the perceptions of the United States after 9-11. So that's the next big geopolitical moment here, right? And the perceptions of the U.S. handling of that war against terrorism. You can talk about drone strikes. You can talk about torture. You can talk about the Iraq war, you know, the long war in Afghanistan. And then you have the financial crisis. You have a failure to enforce the stated red line in Syria you have the rise of populism in the United States you know in short take us from 9/11 to just before the invasion of Ukraine and how perceptions of the US evolved during that period and I know that's a that's a big question
2: yes michael those are a lot of questions <laughs> um, and these are all uh, groundbreaking events but of a very different nature 9/11 was perceived as an attack not just against the U.S., but against the whole Western alliance. Remember, NATO invoked Article 5 of its treaty, the case of collective defense, for the first time in its history, only one day after 9-11. And this was an act of unprecedented solidarity. The war against uh, the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, who had hosted and protected al-Qaeda, was seen as a legitimate defense act. It was quite different in the case of the Iraq war in 2003. As opposed to Bush's father's war against Iraq in 1991 to liberate Kuwait, Bush's son did not get a mandate from the UN Security Council. Europe was split in two camps, France and Germany opposed Bush's decision to go to war against Iraq, the UK and some Eastern European countries supported the US, but it left scars in the alliance. The debate was about legitimacy of the Iraq war, but also about the effects of military interventions in the Middle East. In hindsight, the Iraq war turned out to be a disaster for the region, terrorism proliferated And Iran was the winner of this geopolitical earthquake. You mentioned, you know, Abu Ghraib and the torture practices. Yes, that alienated many countries. It tarnished the image of the U.S. as a standard Bureau of Human Rights. But the Iraq War also taught us all a lesson about the limits of Western interventions in foreign regions. And that was... I guess the backdrop of Obama's decision not to enforce the previously stated red lines in Syria. After long wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, with limited success, the American people were war-weary. And I think European leaders understood that. I think they were less critical of this U.S. retrenchment from the international scene or from parts of the world than the U.S. political class or the think tanks in Washington. Although European allies complained about the hastiness of the withdrawal
0: from Afghanistan in September last year. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Peter. (sighs) (sighs) Ah! Okay, Peter, go ahead.
2: Michael, you mentioned the rise of populism in the U.S. This is an entirely different matter. President Trump's America First Doctrine and his, at times, outright disdain for alliances came as a shock to European leaders. Of course, with notable exceptions, like the Hungarian strongman Orbán or Boris Johnson, who flirted with Trump. Politically speaking, Trump's actions were seen as a real threat to the survival of NATO and the Western alliance. Europeans feared President Trump would simply abdicate from the U.S. role as leader of the Western community of nations. Luckily, it did not happen. In a way, the Trump presidency was a healthy wake-up call to Europeans and to Germans in particular, to invest more for their own security and stop free-riding in defense spending. But I must also add a qualifying remark here. On a global scale, there have been quite a few governments and leaders that saw in Trump and in his America-first approach a welcome change or even a model to emulate from Brazil to the Philippines, from Israel to Saudi Arabia. So Trump
0: was certainly not alone. So Peter, did the U.S. distancing itself from its allies, did it force those allies in any way to hedge a bit with regard to Russia and China, do you think, or not?
2: The perception of the U.S. shifted according to events. The exceptions of of leaders were probably more stable than those of the rather fickle public opinions. In the case of Europe, trust of allies had developed over decades of closed cooperation and was not easily destroyed. The Iraq War, however, put a strain on this level of trust, but there was never any question of hedging the bets by relying more on China and Russia. The Trump presidency, however, was, as I said, an event of a different nature. His administration was at times, for instance, concerning our continent, was at times outrightly hostile to the European Union. He once called it worse than China. So most European leaders quickly realized Europe must rely more on itself. And one more important thing the perceived absence of the U.S. leadership in the West during the time of Trump created a vacuum. Russia and China tried to step in and fill the gap in Europe, but also Latin
0: America, Asia, and the Middle East. So, Peter, let's shift gears here and talk about Ukraine. And let me start here with a, the very general question Has the U.S. reaction to the initial buildup of Russian forces on the Ukrainian border and then the U.S. reaction to the invasion itself altered perceptions of the U.S.? And if so, by how much? What's your sense of that?
2: The U.S. was the first one to see through the buildup of Russian forces at the Ukrainian border and to predict an outright Russian war of aggression. And the groundbreaking step to share its intelligence, not only with governments but also with the public at large, was a first. It had never been done before on this scale. So, this coercive, if I may say so, this coercive use of intelligence destroyed Putin's narratives and pretexts for his war. However, few governments in Europe, one has to confess, had believed the US forecasts, including, by the way, the Ukrainian leadership. But the US intelligence turned out to be exactly right up to this exact day of of the invasion. So the administration's clairvoyance and the handling of the war, resolute but controlled and measured, strengthened its reputation and the trust in US leadership. It stood in stark contrast to the chaotic way the U.S. engagement in Afghanistan has ended. But I also must add a caveat here. Europe's attitude is not representative of the whole world. Only 38 countries, mainly the European and Asian allies, take part in the sanctions regime against Russia. Many important countries even refuse to condemn Russia's war of aggression. Not only China, but many heavyweights from the global south, India, Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, the Gulf countries. In this sense, the world is far from united in its perception of the U.S. and its allies.
0: So I'm wondering, Peter, what is behind the reluctance of so many countries in the world to? condemn Putin's invasion of Ukraine and to support the West and the Ukrainians? You know, you mentioned India and Brazil and Mexico. What's, why have they taken the position they've taken?
2: I think they have uh, different motivations. Some of those countries are heavily dependent on arms deliveries or energy supply from Russia. Others just don't think that the Ukraine war or the conflict in Ukraine is relevant for them. In their eyes, it's a far away European thing. And, you know, others uh, just don't want to belong to the Western camp. They want to stay out of that conflict and be sort of neutral. They think it will be to their detriment if they join the Western camp. So their motivations are you know, manifold and, and different for, for each of those countries who have not joined us in resisting Russia's aggression.
0: Peter, I'm going to ask a broader question to you in a minute about China. But at this point, let me just ask, to what extent has China's support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine damaged the EU's relationship with China, you know, which is a critically important relationship for both China and the EU. Do you have a a sense of that?
2: Well, yes, China's reaction uh, to Russia's invasion has indeed important repercussions in Europe. Uh, Europeans begin to shine a much more critical light on China as these two authoritarian regimes have formed an alliance. Companies doing business with China are facing increasing headwinds from their domestic public opinions in Europe. But also from their governments. Now the European Union will be more outspoken and critical on China-related issues like Taiwan, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, or Hong Kong. In my view, my personal view, China has committed a colossal error in promising Putin a friendship with no limits, as it was called when the two leaders met. I assume now many top Chinese officials are already regretting it. Uh, They must have been shocked by Russia's surprisingly poor military war performance. But my assessment is that Beijing will be very careful not to be dragged into the Russian imbroglio and be very careful to avoid US and European sanctions. And that means, I guess, China will neither choose to be an unconditional ally with Russia, nor will it abandon Russia as an
0: important junior partner for China. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery, Peter, as you look at Ukraine today, what concerns you most about the war there? And given that concern, given how you think about it at the moment, what do you think we, defined as NATO, need to do going forward here?
2: Michael, my concern is that with all the admirable, heroic bravery of the Ukrainian armed forces and the weapons flowing in from Western countries, Russia is making gains in the Donbass, in the eastern part of the Ukraine, mainly because of its relentless artillery attacks. So we will be in for a much longer haul, I believe, months, maybe taking us well into the next year. This will be a protracted battle, a kind of war of attrition. Who will have the upper hand in such a fight? if the war disappears from page one of Western media, Putin is a ruthless leader. He will not accept defeat. So clearly, NATO countries need to step up uh, their support to help the Ukraine pushing back the aggressor. But at some point, the Ukrainians will have to decide what their war goals are. This is first and foremost, of course, a Ukrainian decision. But also NATO will have to reflect on the conditions of a possible ceasefire uh, and beyond. We're not at this point yet, but there uh, will be difficult choices ahead.
0: Peter, as you think about where this might be headed, and I know this this is a tough question, but at this point, what do you think the outcome will ultimately be? And I know that might depend on policy decisions made in a lot of places, but what's your expectation for how this ends?
2: Michael, a tough question indeed. Uh, It's difficult to tell. I tend to think that on the battlefield, in the end, neither side will be able to claim outright victory. But how does this change the world around Russia? Putin's Russia has started a brutal war of aggression against a sovereign nation, it has committed war crimes. It is responsible for tens of thousands of dead and wounded, of unbelievable destruction of cities, infrastructure, and cultural heritage. Not forget the many million refugees and an unfathomable suffering of the population. That will be the Russian legacy. So Russia will leave a wound in Europe's eastern part that will take generations to heal. Russia has also destroyed the post-Cold War order. It's already history. We see, I believe, a Cold War 2.0 emerging in Europe. Western and allied countries will engage in some sort of containment strategy, a new enhanced military buildup, long-term economic sanctions, political isolation of Russia as long as Putin's regime remains in power. So Putin really has already lost the war. NATO has been reinvigorated, even traditionally neutral countries like Finland and Sweden are now joining, unimaginable, you know, a while ago. The EU showed surprising unity and will beef up its defense. And the medium and long-term effects of the sanctions regime, by the way, the most robust in history against any major country, will cripple the Russian economy and drive talented young Russians out of the country. Putin will want to tighten the grip in his immediate neighborhood through an alliance of authoritarian regimes. This is part of his imperial project to resuscitate Russia's imagine glory of the past. Michael, I think it will not end well for Russia.
0: Peter, I want to ask you two final questions here. As you think about the changing perceptions of the United States over the last several decades, are there any broad lessons, broad themes that jump out to you?
2: Well, Michael, my final thought revolves around the U.S. domestic situation. It matters enormously for the way the U.S. is perceived in the world. Any friend of the U.S. must be deeply concerned about the level of division and bitter polarization in, in America's political and public life. For many young democracy democracies around the globe, the U.S., the oldest constitutional democracy in the world, served as a model. Germany was one of of those countries. I fear that this example and this kind of, if I may say so, U.S. soft power is fading. Allies worry about the next U.S. presidential election. Will the losing candidate and his or her party once again claim that the victory was stolen? Our authoritarian foes in the world are gleefully watching the fragility of a powerful democracy. So extreme domestic polarization and political gridlock in a country weakens the power abroad and weakens the ability to lead internationally. And I think
0: this is the main challenge of the U.S. today. Yeah, so do I. I couldn't agree more with that, Peter. Last question, Peter. Obviously the the relationship between the United States and China is important for the whole world and how that relationship evolves will be important to the world. If you could advise both the United States and China about how to manage that relationship going forward, what would your what would your broad thoughts be?
2: Micah, I believe China is on the way to become a one-man autocracy. President Xi Jinping will be given a third term at uh, the party conference at the end of the year. It is likely that he plans to stay for life. Uh, China has once again become more ideological. The influence of the Communist Party is on the rise on political and security issues at home and in its neighborhood Beijing is ever more assertive, even coercive. Economically, it is flouting the international rules and practices. All of this is not good news, frankly. But it becomes clear the most strategic future relationship of our time is the one between the U.S. and China. It's decisive for the whole world. Europe's interest here is not to enter into an ever more dangerous spiral of conflict between the two superpowers, with no exit or uh, without any off-ramp. The way forward, I believe, is for the US and the European Union to team up, to face China together from a position of strength, to contain it where needed in security issues, for example, but also to cooperate with Beijing, where we need China's contribution, be it to tackle climate change or to cope with with global health issues. The U.S. and the European Union have made some headway. Uh, They created a joint European-U.S. Trade and Technology Council to coordinate our policies in relation to China. But we need a more comprehensive approach, a joint approach to calibrate our China relationship wisely between cooperation, competition, and conflict. And that is one, if not the most important, challenge for our alliance in the coming decade, I believe.
0: Peter, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an incredibly thoughtful conversation a pleasure to have you on Intelligence Matters. Thank you so much.
2: Michael, it was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: That was Ambassador Peter Wittig. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.